Welcome back to Calling All Beings. It has been a minute. I'm your host, DJ, and I am so excited to be back with my fam with an amazing guest tonight. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, when I heard this brother referring to the guy who had, uh, uh, basically, he took a Native American word, and and as Matt says, anglicized. I said, man, Nathan, he had him at anglicized. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, so we're so so excited about that, and uh, because he, he's speaking Nathan's language, let's let's say it like that. So, uh, without further ado, uh, the co-creator, co-conspirator of this fun, interesting, and entertaining look at UFOs, uh, the the uh, executive producer of the joint, Money Nathan. What's up, brother? What is going on, y'all? Good to be back on the show. It does feel like it's been forever, but it's so cool to be with you guys and to have Priscilla with us tonight. I'm very excited about this show. It's gonna be good. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to get to her in a second. But, you know, one of the original gangsters of this thing, uh, the mental health technician, the woman who we just love. She's a paragon of the virtue of this joint uh, at a study of UAPs, the host of Deb's Data Dojo. What's up, Deb? A.K.A. Bigfoot Babysitter. Also. <laughs> I am here. We're going to get to that. We're <laughs> We're going to see what Matt has to say about that, man, because, you know, who knows? I mean, it, we just don't know what we don't know, right? Uh, the host of Quantum Witch Cafe and a new joint that just came up that's been uh, uh, on Vinnie Adams' channel and is part of his network. Uh, but the Quantum Witch Cafe UFO Book Club, a very learned individual, someone that we all love and respect. And she was in this documentary film, Phenomenology. So put those hands together for Priscilla Stone, the Quantum Witch. <laughs> I love it. I love the way you say my name. And thank you for having me. It's so great to see Nathan and Deb. And Nathan, it's been too long. DJ, Forever. I talk to you like weekly, so it's not been too long. <laughs> it's just like, peace out, DJ. I've got you too much again. of you already. <laughs> All right, so I'm in a hotel room, so this is why I'm not yelling as loud. They're probably going to get a call at the front desk. Lies. I thought you were uh, in space. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's what I love about StreamYard. Uh, but I'll tell you what. Uh, so this gentleman, uh, I, had an, I had heard about this gentleman. I want to ask him. I believe that he was part of the crew of, of Finding Bigfoot. He is a multi-decade researcher. Um, and when I heard him speak, I was just like, man. This guy is just brilliant, man. I just love listening to the way that he broke it down. I heard him on Tim and Dana's uh, Bigfoot Influencers first, but I've also heard him speak on his own podcast because I listen every week. Um, he has a new book, uh, and this new book, let me see, the title here is The Phenomenal Sasquatch, Seeking the Origins of a Cultural Icon, a book that demonstrates his dedication to unraveling the truth behind this intriguing mystery that um, has certainly played a big part in my life and has me out in the woods. So party people, put those hands together for North Georgia's own Mr. Matt Pruitt. Put those hands out. Let me see something up in there. 
Thanks for having me. North Georgia zone. I'll take it. That's still home. You know, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, but this is one of those towns where nobody here is from here. And so I definitely fall into that category for sure. Oh, oh but there's a lot of musician brothers up in there, right? So you got people, Absolutely. you get, you can get a jam session, right? Uh, the most talented musicians in the country all move here and compete for gigs. And so, I mean, you walk down Broadway and every guitar player is absolutely phenomenally incredible. And so I don't know if I could hang with a lot of those people, you know, there's some really talented people here. It, it's so interesting because when you say that, Matt, you, and I've, I've been friends with guitar player and I love to talk music with people that play music because I don't. Um, and is it inspirational? What do you feel like when you see someone play guitar? And, you you know, you're obviously a really good guitar player yourself. You've performed live, you know, hundreds of shows, right? So what is it like when you see a guitar player that's just awesome? Well, you know, I think we all gravitate towards the things that are just out of our reach. And so, like, my favorite vocalists very often tend to be people that are just so far beyond what I'm capable of. Because I grew up playing guitar and singing. I was in bands and I was in a major label band for a few years in my early 20s. And so, uh, you know, there's certain, like, niches of things that just escape me. And so those are the things I gravitate towards. And so there's certain, like, technicality uh, that certain players have. And again, this I've never been a country music fan. I'm still not. Uh, mm -hmm. but a lot of that like chicken picking is super technical and really difficult. And there's so many of those players in town that are amazing. And because that's not my realm, that stuff blows me away. You know, when it's too close to home, you can sort of like when I hear a lot of stuff that's in that rock and roll sort of vein, mm -hmm. I hear it through the experience of having played it for so long or recording it. And so it's, it's hard for me to break out of like the analytical mind of like, Oh, that's a, you know, is that an 18 inch kick drum or a 24 inch kick drum or, <laughs> Oh, that's a strat in the second or fourth position or, Oh, those are humbuckers. Or that sounds like versus when it's something, another genre that I don't wrap my head around. I just take it in and like, Oh, wow, this is beautiful. You know, even though it's not my thing. So there's a lot of that in Nashville for sure. And speaking of things just out of your reach, I kind of feel that way about hair, hair growth. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of here, but getting that center to come back, it just, it hasn't happened. I've asked different UFO experiencers if if there's a key that the phenomenon has that they could unlock hair regrowth. And, and, and I haven't gotten there yet. But so I understand what you mean in that regard. Uh, Money Nathan. So what is it? How many people do we know in ufology? And, and Matt was saying on another interview that he did about how many pe musicians there are. What, could you guys hit that up real quick? You and, and Matt. I mean, there's there's at least a few. I know uh, we had Simeon Hine on with us, and he he actually played at the end of the show. That was really cool. Uh, Darren, oh, that's right, <laughs> is also a musician. Darren Exoacademian is a musician, and he was in some bands when he was younger. Plays several different instruments. Um, of course, I can think of Sean Rash as well. He's a, a very talented guy with a lot of songwriter, musician, and plays several instruments also. So yeah, I mean, it's Benji. Uh, Benji, I mean, there's yeah, there's so many. There's it's so uh, many. it's it's Flair. a talented batch. We, we're 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 drowning in the riches of our talent, which is great. Yeah, and there's Big a lot of that in Sasquatchery too. And you know, I think it is that you know the big five personality traits, one of which being openness, and it's typically mm. described as like openness to experience. But that's also the creativity realm. And so you know, the higher you are in trait openness, very often the more you see the associations between things, you tend to be a more associative or lateral thinker. And I think mm -hmm. people that have that personality trait uh, in abundance tend to be able to see the connections between 
let's say like the known scientific realm and things that are currently within the unknown to be able to, to make sense of them. And they also happen to be driven creatively. So very often they are musicians. And so um, I don't know if you, you're all familiar with the Micah Hanks, you know, yeah, Micah's a of good course. friend of mine. Absolutely. You know, He's been on the great, show. Yeah. is great student of the Sasquatch subject and obviously like a great student of the, the UFO subject as well. And he is a fantastic musician and a great friend. I think the world of Micah, uh, Cliff Barrickman's a musician, uh, Lyle Blackburn. Wow. I mean, uh, my friend Daryl yeah. Collier with the NAWAC, you know, uh, he and I both appear on, you know, we had a podcast that we did semi-regularly, although we're overdue for an episode for the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. But uh, a lot of people don't realize, like, he's an incredible musician. He's an amazing guitar player. He writes great songs and he has an amazing singing voice. And so there are a lot wow. of musicians in these fields, but I think it's because of that the highness in, in trade openness. Wow. And, 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 uh, Daryl's an air force linguist. He and I could have actually flown together, except that I don't, I think he was in, um, he wasn't in the same command as I, I think he was like ACC or something, but, uh, I, th I think I know the airplanes he flew on, but yeah, we, we could have actually been paired together cause I think we crossed over. So that's, that's cool, yeah. man. Way cool. Um, all right, let's jump into it. Money. Do you want to go first, brother? I, yeah, I can't wait to get started. I want to get into the book, but before I get there, I want to make sure we set a little groundwork. Uh, so, Matt, can you tell our audience a little bit about what was your on-ramp into the study of Sasquatch? How did you get started on this path? Well, I'll try to make it short because I've, I've told this story so many times over the last, you know, 15 plus years of doing interviews and things like that. So people can go find that elsewhere. But I did have an experience when I was young. I was 17. I was with four other people and it was outside of Helen, Georgia, where I grew up in the Northeast Georgia mountains there. Now we didn't see the things. We basically heard sounds that included uh, vocalizations that are now I know are characteristic or often attributed to the Sasquatch phenomenon, uh, you know, branch branches, breaking brush being thrashed and vegetation, you know, being shaken a tree, broken and pushed over very loudly and mm. we didn't know what we were experiencing because we knew it wasn't other human beings because of the context it was very densely forested uh environment at night and then uh, we we knew it wasn't you know bears or deer or something of that nature and so it was just an anomalous experience that we didn't know what to attribute it to and the place that we were visiting that we were exploring at night had a reputation for being a haunted or spooky place. And so it seemed like, well, yeah, weird things do happen there, I guess, you know, cause I grew up in that area and did a lot of, you know, camping and a lot of hiking, a lot of fishing with my dad. And so never experienced anything like that before, despite all the time and, you know, wild places in Southern Appalachia. Mm -hmm. And so later I stumbled on Sasquatch information online, which I thought was ludicrous and preposterous you know, the idea of these big lumbering apes, you know, hurling stones at people and smelling terrible and, you know, <laughs> generally like running away from people. But then I started to really dig into eyewitness testimonies and found people's, uh, you know, claims that read exactly like the experience that we had. And then finding vocalization recordings or other sound recordings that were not only identical to what we heard, but during that initial encounter, a friend of mine had a VHSC camcorder. And so we have a lot of the sounds recorded. Now, mostly you just see dense foliage at night. You don't really see anything, but you can hear the sounds. And so that was the impetus to go, oh, I, I've got to get to the bottom of, of looking into this. Could that have been what we experienced? Are there really animals that fit the description offered by Sasquatch claimants? Um, and could they occur in Southern Appalachia? You know, because it was so tightly associated with the Northwest, almost exclusively for so long, 
uh, in, you know, the first, well, the last half of the 20th century, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, I'll just get to the bottom of this and figure it out. And now it's been 20 plus years and I'm still trying to get to the bottom <laughs> of it and figure it out. I haven't seen one. Uh, so I, I can't claim that, you know, I have that sort of gnosis that one would achieve from a visual sighting, but I've had other experiences over the years and traveled all over the country, moved all over the country, done extensive field research, interviewed many hundreds of witnesses and on and on and on. So it's, it's been a, quite a fun and wild journey for sure. That's fantastic. Bro, bro, I was going to say, we going to get into that bit about Western North Carolina. You were talking about the three days during the, the year of research. And so we're going to, we're going to get into that, but I can't get in the way of the freight train. That is my co-host, Deb. <laughs> yeah, so I was thinking when you made those comments about um, being creative and how that seems to draw people into both cryptids and um, the phenomenon in general and, you know, the paranormal. I was wondering if you feel like this journey has been um, a transformative path for you. Has it been a, a, almost a spiritual path for you personally? Because it, it becomes like that for others. Oh, absolutely. There is no doubt about it. And I think for a lot of years, I tried to maybe not reject that, but I certainly denied it. And not only was I denying it publicly, but I was definitely denying it to myself. Um, and there's a bit towards the end of the book about that, you know, spoiler alert. But and I, I do think it's because, you know, when you're investigating or trying to contend with some sort of what the rest of the world might think of as like a fringe idea or a fringe phenomenon or something taboo that's relegated to the realm of, you know, just like silly campfire stories. You, you have this desire to sort of make it as intellectual a pursuit as possible because it is an intellectual pursuit. There's no doubt about that, you know, and you're trying to be as responsible as you possibly can be in evaluating claims and, uh, you know, developing your expertise across the relevant disciplines so that you can have, you know, a, a, a reliable sort of method of looking at evidence to evaluate it for yourself or experiences that you have in the field. And so I think I've heard other people say, it, and I know I said it when I was younger, this like, oh, this is not an emotional pursuit. This is purely an intellectual pursuit. This is a scientific pursuit. And it's like, <laughs> the reality is it is a pursuit of meaning to a very large degree. And now you can either recognize that and then embrace it and then let that fuel you or you can just deny it and reject it and feel the, the misery that comes with not accepting that. But, you know, uh, not to belabor the point that's in the book, because it's certainly not like the end of the book, but it's towards the end. So people, uh, they'll if they end up reading it, they'll they'll see this particular portion. But I would say that uh, all of these things that we pursue, first of all, you have no control over what it is that you're interested in because there's an infinite number of things in the world. I mean, there's an infinite number of things in this room I could be interested in if I wanted to be. And so it's not like you have this decision tree and you pick and choose to be interested in this to the exclusion of everything else. It's just things call to you. You know, that's why they call it a calling or, you know, a, a vocation, right. <laughs> these sorts of things. And so, you know, I have no control over the fact that I've been like relentlessly obsessed with trying to figure this out for, for 20 years. And so, you know, you, you end up putting it at the top of your sort of hierarchy of goals, let's say, or it becomes one of the most important things. And that is transformative in and of itself, because there's things that you have to do, especially if you're being realistic about defining your expectations and like, well, what is it that I want to accomplish? Like, well, 
I've had experiences and I've, I've seen things that, you know, seemed like, let's say tracks, you know, impressions that I, I would say, well, those look like what other people call Sasquatch tracks. And so if I were trying to answer the question solely to my own satisfaction, then I certainly could have said, well, I'll set the bar however high or low, you know, I could have chosen to and said, okay, I figured this out. I'm good. I don't need to pursue this anymore. I've answered the question. But if you think, well, I want to answer this question to the satisfaction of others and potentially society. Well, now you're you have to abide by their standards. You know, if you want to demonstrate something to the institutions, let's say, you know, academic, governmental, scientific institutions. Well, you don't get to set the bar however high or low you want. You have to abide by their standards. And those are pretty high. And so you have to aim up at that. And you have to sort of draw upon the inspiration that the, the subject gives you or the pursuit gives you the meaning, the pursuit of that meaning and allow that to guide you to try to like be better, conduct yourself in a better way, be smarter, learn more, be more charitable, be more forgiving. And so it's definitely transformative across a number of different dimensions, I would say. And it is a, a pursuit of meaning. And I think that happens on both sides. I mean, because even the staunchest uh, skeptics or cynics, let's say, they're still pursuing meaning even though they very often will say, this is purely an intellectual pursuit. It's like, no, we, <laughs> we both have, it's all built upon an imaginative fantasy, you know, because you have a vision of the future and that's a fantasy, right? I mean, that's, you, you sort of uh, daydream about like what the, the greater good would look like. And so for the proponents, it's like, well, these things need discovery. Maybe they need to be protected. Maybe their habitat needs to be protected. So all these things that I'm doing is going to bring about this greater good. And it, it has a moral aim. You know, it will uh, vindicate researchers who've dedicated their lives to it. It will vindicate and validate witnesses who've suffered uh, ridicule and disbelief, et cetera. Well, those skeptics are no different because they think that like, oh, well, there's this sort of... Uh, you know, the cult of Sasquatchery. We need to liberate people from these false beliefs and we need to slay the proverbial <laughs> dragons of pseudoscience. Yes. The and so they're the still, UFO. <laughs> yeah, they're engaged in a moral aim yeah. with a sort of visionary outcome of like a utopian greater good end point. And so anything you're interested in that you're pursuing is a pursuit of meaning rested upon a, a a sort of a fantasy with a moral aim or trajectory, like a, a moral will, let's say. And so as I got older, I started to realize that and was like, well, I should just lean into that because that's what fuels me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have dealt with so much of the the trouble or heartache or headache or everything that comes along with, you know, failure and disappointment and, you know, like thinking because I really thought when I first got into it, like, oh, yeah, I'll figure this out in no time. I'll see one in a matter of time, you know, and I'll figure out what they are and I'll get photographs and I'll get video. And it's like, I don't have any of that stuff, but I love the pursuit. And so it is definitely transformative. And, you know, I think interviewing very compelling witnesses, every one of those experiences is transformative and having experiences yourself in the field, those are transformative. You know, we all have that sort of initiation, right? Like you had said, like, what's the on-ramp? I love that term, by the way. Uh, <laughs> That's one of subject. his favorites. <laughs> and many of us... A lot of people, it's because they had an experience that they couldn't explain conventionally. You know, they, there's no prosaic explanation that's like, oh, it was a deer, it was a bear, it was a person, whatever the case may be. So that's like the initial initiation into this sort of pursuit. 
you know, and then you're constantly seeking renewals of that initiation. That's why we seek to have other experiences, other points of contact with the phenomenon. And those are all rooted in a pursuit of meaning. And so, you know, I'm more than happy to admit that it's more than just an intellectual pursuit for me. And it, it is very transformative for sure. That could be a song title, maybe more than a feeling. Do you think that it could, that could hit? I so think, anyway, I yeah. think that sounds like it could hit, especially if you're so, from a certain city in the, <laughs> in the Northeast. In the Northeast. Yeah. Uh, so one thing I was just going to say, just to follow up, I, I would also argue, you know, in, in think people that would say that they're in pursuit of just science. I think people want to go out and they want a feeling because you know, science, you're talking about, okay, we're going to go down to the lab today. We're going to perform some experimentation in many cases. In the case of Bigfoot, there's a lot that you have to go through to get yourself out there. And and for a lot of people, they want to have a feeling. And that feeling can happen when you're in the presence of something that is really the same th- reason people ghost hunt and things. You know what I mean? Is, is you get in the woods, you maybe hear, if you hear that howl, as you've heard, as you said, you talked about, you have to fight through it because your instinct is I'm headed back to the car right now. Uh, but you you power through it and then maybe you can get some analysis on what you're listening to. So but you know what? I, I don't want to babble anymore because I got to get the quantum witch in here. So go ahead, please, Priscilla. I'll, I'll get back with Matt here in a minute. Thank you. Um, yes, so ma'am. I think that my biggest question is because so many people that have experienced these things and study these things have like experience upon experience. And even if you only have one, you are talking to people that have had these experiences. Has your research in this field have, has it had you question like the place of yourself in this universe and even honestly in this dimension or like our place just possibly co-evolving with these beings? Not necessarily just because, I spent so much time studying analogous mammals, you know, other mammals that live similar lifestyles, whether they're generalized omnivores or, you know, even animals that are very rare and and far ranging over large home ranges and things like that. And so I see so many analogs between the animals that are described by the Sasquatch phenomenon and other animals that we, we understand well now that to me, they fit perfectly in the framework of the natural world. So it definitely gave me a deeper appreciation and a greater love for the natural world and for, you know, digging in as like as obsessively as I could about related disciplines like evolutionary biology and ecology and these related fields. Um, But it didn't necessarily change my place uh, or my perception of my place, like in the, the ranking order of the natural world, or even from a, to your point, like a almost dimensional or maybe even metaphysical sort of perspective. Cause to me, these are just, perfectly normal animals that happen to be very rare and due to their lifestyle and their the evolutionary pressures that shape them you know again if they exist if there really is a biological route to the the sasquatch phenomenon which is what i argue in the in the book but um the the evolutionary pressures that created these things make them very difficult to detect or to observe on demand. And so there is this sort of paradoxical thing where, like you said, there are so many people that have experiences and that are willing to disclose those. And there's many more people who don't disclose them publicly. Like the vast majority of witnesses that I've interviewed were willing to tell me confidentially under the agreement that I would never you know, publish their story or something of that nature, which is unfortunate because some of them are so compelling 
And they're, you know, some of them are really stellar professionals, which is a, one of the things, and I'm sure you deal with this in the, in the UAP realm is, are, are we saying UAP now? I'm still like, cause yeah, I'm not a student fancy, of that subject. Yeah. I still want, the fancy I still want to say, there's a reason UFO. for it, but yeah, there's a reason for it. Oh, I understand. But yeah. it's sort of like, uh, you know, the, the organization that I work with the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, you know, they had sort of set up that nomenclature in that organization well before I joined, but it was an attempt to sort of shed the baggage of the term Bigfoot or Sasquatch. But what inevitably happens is people go, well, what's a wood ape? Oh, it's a Sasquatch. It's like, what's a UAP? Oh, it's a UFO. It's, so UFO. it's like, well, why don't we just use, why don't we just use the original word? Yes. But to, I'm sure this happens in the UFO world is that people, the general public tends to confer certain benefits to people with certain titles or backgrounds, which is unfortunate because, uh, you know, just because someone happens to have some degree or some success in some career doesn't immediately make them more credible or believable or valuable as an observer than a farmer or a hunter or, you know, someone that that is on the lower rung, let's say, of the socioeconomic ladder. Now, UFOs being a worldwide phenomenon that are experienced by people all over the world, because they seem to be fairly limitless, you do have a larger variety, probably, of, of categories of witness. But with the Sasquatch in North America, well, they happen in wild places. And so the people that tend to see them the most tend to be people that live in or at the edge of those wild places. And the majority of those are not people who have like C-suite positions working in corporate towers downtown in major cities. You know, they tend to be very often, like we talked about, you know, the sort of cultural stigma associated with like North Georgia, for example, Southern Appalachia, you know, deliverance and that sort of thing. And so it's unfortunate that people want to look at witnesses maybe from that particular realm and dismiss them. And yet assign so much value to witnesses that are, you know, professionals, let's say, or, or military careerists, academics, et cetera. And so a lot of those great witnesses, like I was mentioning, that are not willing to go on the record having seen a Sasquatch, they're like, well, I don't want to be associated with the sort of Joe Six Pack on the evening news who says he saw a Sasquatch. And it's like, yeah, but you could change that perception if you would just come forward and, and discuss it and describe it. Now, I know that's a long-winded answer to your question, but, you know, through those experiences, interviewing so many people, interfacing with the environments where these things happen, like, to me, it's a very uh, normal flesh and blood sort of animal that's analogous to other animals. And so it doesn't really change my perception of, like, my place in a metaphysical sense or dimensional sense or even, a, like, a, a pecking order of, of the tree of life, let's say, sense. So hopefully that answers your question. It does. Thank you. And one thing I was going to say, one of the interesting things about UAP, first of all, when I came into the topic and I said the exact same thing that you said, because to me, they're UFOs. Why are they changing the name? And someone, I come from an aviation background and someone who's a layperson to aviation said, well, what if what they're doing is not flying? And then you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Not using Bernoulli's theorem, not beholden to Newton's laws of motion, which is how we create lift and how everything that I know of on Earth uh, flies. So, and then the director of the uh, UAP program in the Pentagon said, well, you know, we're seeing these under the ocean. 
So you're like, what? <laughs> Wait. So that's when it went from unidentified aerial phenomenon to unidentified anomalous phenomenon because submarines have clocked these things doing mock underwater, uh, something that height from a hydrodynamic standpoint we couldn't do. So, um, so that's why is that they're undersea, they're in the air, but they're not exactly flying because they're not using, they don't need the air to create lift the way that we do. Um, they can just hover in one position for eight hours and just hang out. <laughs> There's like nothing on earth that could do that. So anyway, uh, so that that's where, you know, that UAP term comes from. Well, words um, collect so much baggage, you know, because they yeah. get associated with media representations and hoaxes and, you know, True. they become pejoratives. And so, you know, like I can't stand the word Bigfoot. I try to never use it. Sasquatch to me is a much more, um, appropriate term in that it sort of dually handles a lot of the indigenous the sure. weight of the indigenous traditions uh, but it's also reflected of a, a modern term because it is an anglicized term or you could say bastardized term uh, that yeah. jw burns coined in 1929 anglicized but, nathan i just okay but it's so funny like to see the american sort of version if i'm recalling this correctly because it's been a while since i've looked into this particular aspect of the history but um, I believe that one of the indigenous words for what we would call or we would recognize as the Yeti, which unfortunately there's too many things that get housed under that category because Yeti basically means that thing there. It has about the same categorical wow. power as creature. So you could say, well, what's a creature? Well, a bear's a creature and a cougar's a creature and a moose is a creature. And so Yeti, you know, depending on where you are in the Himalayas or that greater region can refer to a number of different things. But anyway, one of the local words for these mystery apes was um, Meto Kangmi. And hmm. when it was transmitted over the wire, the O in Meto accidentally was transmuted into like a C, which is Mech Kangmi. So uh, M-E-T-O-H changed to M-E-T-C-H. And the closest word that approximated that was filthy. And so when the English received it and they translated it, that became abominable snowman, which is not the, the root word is not, uh, that's not the correct translation of the actual word, but it's like, what a terribly British thing, right? The abominable <laughs> snowman, which is this, it's almost like erudite, you know what I mean? Yeah. Versus in America, they find large tracks and they're like, Bigfoot, and then that name sticks, you know, and it's so goofy and silly that that's, so I, believe me, I understand how terms accumulate baggage over the years and so i'm sure ufo has its own baggage and bigfoot as a word definitely has a lot of baggage i have no preference for any of those uh words but i but there there was a, i was in the same camp i didn't understand why we went to uap and someone who was more venerable on the topic explained it to me a couple of years ago and now the more i know you know the more i understand and as for bigfoot i just think it's kind of a cute name but i i get it why yeah i totally said know, bigfoot some... at the beginning <laughs> sorry well yeah well, it's well, all no. good most people do that's what most yeah. people know i just always like i i prefer sasquatch just because to me it has it carries cultural weight it whereas bigfoot just sounds so silly and funny now you know? that you explained it i'm like i'm never saying bigfoot again well <laughs> Matt Matt spent 200 days in the woods to you know I mean that's a lot that's a lot of as we say it's, it's a lot of skin in the game you know you hear about David Grush and and his testimony before Congress about UAP a lot of skin in the game quit two careers you've got a lot of skin in the game to spend you know 200 days over 365 out in the woods so um, 
so uh well there'd been I, a I lot of years to... of being in the field leading up to that i mean that was just yes. it was one year where i was yes. able to spend a year and now just to be clear like those were not 200 consecutive days and nights right. i'd be three out to like five three nights to five yeah and then, yep. and then come back so there was a lot of hundreds of nights before that and certainly since then too but which is amazing i mean it that's a lot of skin in the game it really is um to study um I, I wanted to get into behaviors. Um, I'm curious that if you could have a window into an encampment, like let's say when it was inhabited, that the Olympia project, you know, when that was actually inhabited by uh, the creatures that we believe made those made those beds uh, that have been now studied for the past, you know, better part of, I guess we're more than five years now. Um what do you think you would see if you were to have a window into that that habitation there where you had the you know you had the 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 you know probably the young uh sasquatch and the moms and so forth and and you sort of buy into the sentries you know the sentries sort of guarding that those complex uh, as, as such well there's a a lot to unpack there with the olympic project nests a uh, very good friend of mine, Chris Spencer, is heavily involved with that. He would be the best person to talk to because he spent so much. Like my understanding of it is sort of from other people's descriptions, like Cliff Barrickman spent time there and Chris has described it to me. And so I don't know enough about it in terms of like were they all constructed, you know, season me, after season. Did they seem like they were all constructed at once? Because certainly, you know, I think they, they found the first nest, nest site was somewhere around like 15 or 17 nests. Now, certainly, I don't think that there's 17 individual Sasquatches that are right. like sleeping in close quarters. And so it's like, <laughs> were those, you know, are they built and constructed and used for a single night? And then on a return visit, uh, the same individual might build an entirely new nest to sleep in. So there's so many layers of assumptions we'd have to go through of like, were they absolutely made by Sasquatches? Uh, you know, how many individuals, like, what do the construction sort of look like in terms of uh, a time frame? Is it seasonal? Mm -hmm. Is it nightly? Who knows? And so the model that makes the most sense to me that sort of emerges from the as reliable reports as you can find, which is, you know, a tricky proposition, because so much of that is subjective. You know, what I find to be a reliable report, someone else might not. And Believe me, there's plenty of reports that other people find reliable that I don't think are very reliable. And so it's very subjective. Um, but, but you 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 clearly have thought about what those encampments would look like. That's, I wouldn't that's even kind call of them encampments because, you know, well, animals that, yeah, you know, ahead. just to, for the nomenclature to be correct. Like, I don't think sure. that they have a central hub that they uh, like radiate out of and return back to because you know a lot of far-ranging animals just don't live that way now again for good analogous animals might be something like black bears or brown slash grizzly bears or you know i very often invoke the the tiger because yes, tigers tiger. you know have very large home ranges and they're highly mobile in those ranges now with an, an animal's range will be as large as it needs to be to sustain that particular animal so they vary wildly across the same species. So, you know, black bears in the Southern Appalachians have very small home ranges because the environment is so rich. Like where Nathan is, you know, some of those counties like Transylvania County get 110 inches of rainfall a year. Wow. Much more than like certain Pacific Northwestern counties that are considered temperate rainforest. Rainforest. But, 
there's 135,000 square miles of southern Appalachia that are temperate rainforest, and they're much more biodiverse and much more productive in terms of uh, uh, productivity per land unit, per square mile, let's say. So if you have the same species of black bear, individuals of the same species that are the same size, let's say, in southern Appalachia, they might only require 16 square miles of habitat, whereas that same individual might require 50 to 70 square miles of Pacific Northwest habitat. It takes that much more area to produce the same amount of food that this much smaller part of eastern deciduous temperate rainforest in southern Appalachia produces. And so really, when you're looking at those analogous animals and trying to extract lessons from those, again, like lateral thinking or associative thinking to apply to the Sasquatch, you could see that, okay, well, you can look at reports and plot them out, especially over time in places that haven't been too affected by human progress, that have remained fairly stable and intact, environmentally speaking, over the last however many, let's say 60, 70 years, something like that. And so you see that, uh, and Krantz did this with certain reports in the Northwest, et cetera, but that you see that Females, sightings of females and or young. So sometimes they're together and sometimes it's just juveniles. So basically, you know, Sasquatches that are only four to four and a half feet tall, something of that nature, they tend to be in the more far flung areas further removed from human habitation. Now, occasionally they do still have roads that cross through them, but by and large, they tend to be away from places like that. Whereas the majority of sightings do happen at the boundary or the fringe of human habitation, and they tend to be of lone males. And so I think very often because gorillas have a sort of system where they certain lone males will post up and watch while the rest of the group is sleeping and those get referred to as sentries. And so people try to apply that to the Sasquatch. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there might be some validity to that. But I also think it's being derived from the fact that what most people see and report at least are lone males at the fringe of human habitation, the edge of like rural agricultural plots or, or homesteads are very often crossing roads. And so if you look at, you know, again, let's say that that Southern Appalachian black bear, the male has a home range of 16 to 18 square miles. The female ranges are much smaller. They're more like four to five square miles. And so you might have these clusters of female ranges and the male overlaps multiple females. The same model is true of tigers. You know, they operate in very much the same way where, you know, a, a male's range is about 1,500 square kilometers for Siberian tigers and the female ranges are more like 400 square kilometers. And so I think when you apply those sort of social models to the Sasquatch and you're looking at reports and trying to differentiate based on what the eyewitness claimed to see, because Sasquatches are described as apes. And so females are notable because they have visible mammary glands. And so that's the number one differentiator that people go, I think what I saw was a male, or I think what I saw was a female. And then you look at juvenile sightings, or Krantz even found that very often sightings of male-female pairs, like consort pairs, what he presumed to be consort pairs, all happen in those more protected areas. Now, a home range for something like that might be you know, if I'm being, let's say in Southern Appalachia, it could be as small as like 70 or 80 square miles, whereas in other parts of the country, it'd be much larger. But if they're always on the move in an area that big, because, you know, 70 square miles is nothing to sneeze at. That's a pretty big area. Now, yeah. it might be more like 400 square miles in other places, you know. Um, 
I don't think that there's enough resources for them to be in camp somewhere where they're radiating out, getting resources and returning to the same place every night. You know, it's probably more of just being highly mobile, following resources that are pretty ephemeral, because especially here in the in the east, like where I spend a lot of my time where Nathan is, you know, we've got seasonal resources and they're patchily distributed. You know, it's not like oaks that produce acorns are evenly distributed across the whole forest. There will be these patches and the same with other, you know, berries or, uh, you know, other food resources. And then you have mobile prey, deer, wild hogs, things of that nature. You know, those are always on the move. And so that sort of lifestyle doesn't lend itself to, you know, having a, a sort of a home base. Does that make sense? So I know it's a yeah. long-winded sort of answer. No, to try I, mean, to I wouldn't expect to see rattan, you know, nightstand and maybe a papasan chair, you know, no furniture setups or anything because they're too mobile and they don't want to carry yeah, and, the furniture. And that's so. part of the problem of trying to observe or to pursue or to predict where an animal that lives that sort of lifestyle will be. And especially the larger that range is. And so, again, it could be as large as in some place. You know, I've, I've heard Dr. Jeff Meldrum and other people think that they have a range up to a thousand square miles, which to me seems a little on the large side. But uh, that's a more so. sort of conservative estimate because, you know, the larger it is, is actually the more conservative estimate because the larger the re required range, the fewer of them you will have. You know, whereas I, I've met people who said, oh, they only need like three square miles. And it's like, if that were true, yeah. <laughs> we'd be tripping all over them because they'd be everywhere. Right. You know, they'd probably require quite a lot of, of room and resources, et cetera. And so an animal like that, I mean, you know, the, there are many tiger biologists who spent, you know, over a decade in pursuit of individual tigers because, you know, tigers have idiosyncratic, you know, their, their paw prints, what they call pug marks. You know, you can identify individuals via that. Oh. Um, and because most of their, a lot of their behavior is learned. It's not hardwired, baked in, innate. Oh, um, interesting. They will have idiosyncratic methods of hunting and killing. And so you can identify by the way a prey animal was killed and the pug marks an individual tiger. And there are some tigers that people studied for over a decade and they never saw the tiger. They only ever saw the kills and the pug marks. And so you could imagine that, you know, something that's at least as an intelligent as a large cat and probably more intelligent, more that, yeah. that's also, you know, in much denser environments here in, again, Southern Appalachia, at least, you know, the Pacific Northwest has some openness, but, you know, it's jungle thick in Western North Carolina. A lot of parts of it, you get in those rhododendron thickets and it's like, you can't see 30 feet, you know, uh, <laughs> then you start to understand like how it could be that an animal that size could remain sort of unrecognized, let's say, because they're not undetected. I mean, we've got many reports, like lots of people claim to have detected them many times. You know what I mean? So uh, undetected is not quite the right word, but maybe unrecognized for sure. Well, Matt, you have these guys who are experts in bushcraft that say that, in their opinion, Sasquatch is better at bushcraft than they could ever hope to be. So, you know, I mean, that that tells the story. They know their environment better than we'll ever know it because they're not going to go home and take a shower and upload their SD cards. You know, this is where they're going to be. But uh, let me give it over to Money Nathan. And um, yeah, we got about 45. We might might go about 10, 15 minutes over tonight. But, um, but we got to 
Oh boy, do we have a lot going on, especially uh, with <laughs> me here. Material. So, oh, so yeah, money. Look. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, yeah. I know. I feel like we should PayPal Matt for these answers. These excellent, answers excellent conversation. So, and you kind of touched on some of this, Matt, with the last response that you gave, but that's the, the degree to which, uh, and it, you touch on this in your book as well, be, with a creature like this that is elusive, highly intelligent, that is seen rarely uh, or, or glimpsed you know every once in a while not there's not a lot of prolonged observation the human imagination tends to fill in a lot of those gaps and the tendency is to uh kind of like hyper mythologize the gap like a, you know like oh it's a giant creature and it can do xyz i don't really know that i just sort of feel that right and so uh, what what is your estimation in terms of bridging that divide? Like, how, how will that be accomplished? Is it just we're going to get lucky and be able to study these more closely? Uh, you know, how will we go about kind of dispelling some of the, the mythology around the animal uh, and getting closer to the real nature of the creature? I think it will just have to undergo the same process. You know, again, if these animals exist, which, you know, I'm obviously convinced that they are, but I understand that the world at large is not. And so I, I find myself making that caveat a lot. It's like, well, the phenomenon exists. What's at the root of it? Potentially these, potentially there are animals that fit these descriptions. And so, but, you know, if they exist, then it, they would just have to undergo the same process that analogous animals that had accumulated the same sort of lore, mythology, um, supernatural, beliefs or you know given supernatural attributes metaphysical attributes etc and so when i was first getting into the subject and was confronted with people that had supernatural leanings or saw the sasquatch through a metaphysical lens i found it really off-putting um, which was totally you know my shortcoming i wasn't being charitable and i didn't i knew so very little about let's say like the normative state of human cognition and how, what we might call magical thinking. And I don't mean that as a pejorative. I, I, there's just no really more accessible term, but that is the normative state of human cognition, of human perception of, you know, that's the substrate of the human psyche, which is why a lot of these ideas, beliefs, you know, uh, attributes, whatever you want to call them, apply to similar animals cross-culturally, globally, you know, around the world and, and have for as long as they have. And so the, I try to accomplish a couple of things simultaneously in the book where it touches on those points is that I try to demonstrate that upon essentially first contact, when non-natives came to North America and, and began to record encounters with indigenous belief systems, oral traditions, narratives, you know, essentially the what we would now call traditional ecological knowledge. You can see in their writings where they're, they're recognizing things within the known and accepting that as environmental knowledge. Uh, and so it might be, you know, information about bears or let's say landforms or certain terrain features, but in almost every instance where they're describing ape-like creatures, you know, non-human much larger than a human, disproportionately long arms, no neck, tend to be nocturnal, have a foot that's about a foot and a half long. You know, all the things that we would call Sasquatch, uh, they would immediately dismiss it. And it's for a number of reasons. Like, number one, there wasn't really a, a good analog in the natural world. We hadn't discovered the lowland gorilla yet, for example. So there wasn't something that's like, oh, hey, it's kind of like a gorilla, what they're describing. It was just like, well, this is strange. But two, 
they were associated with a lot of these supernatural abilities. And so when you read the, whether they're ethnographers sort of recording these stories or some of them are in like personal correspondences or in, you know, expedition logs, let's say it's like, oh, well, let me trouble you with some of their wild superstitions that they believe in this hair covered race of giants. And it's this very dismissive, you know, oh, can you believe this hogwash sort of attitude that's being presented to it? And that is carried forward uh, right up until modern times with the Sasquatch phenomenon in general, but especially when it comes to people that see it through a lens that is a supernaturally tinted lens. And so if we're trying to posit that these are real living animals and they've always been around, it's like, well, how, how do we deal with those sorts of claims? Well, I try to look at, say, okay, well, these animals are very large by all descriptions. They're very rare and they're highly mobile in what seem to be large home ranges. And they're very frightening for a number of reasons, not just their physical size and sometimes intimidating behaviors. So it's like, well, what other animals are very rare and wide ranging and frightening? And two good analogs are, you know, brown bears or black bears, but brown bears are a great example because they extend into, you know, Eurasia and Japan and, you know, uh, other places and tigers. And so when you look at the indigenous, you know, traditional ecological knowledge associated with tigers and bears, you find the exact same supernatural attributes associated with them in Asia, in Africa, that you find associated with the Sasquatch in North America. And so there's something about the experience of these things. Like, to give you a good example, one of the things that's common across, across these various cultures with regard to these animals is a belief that, you know, they, they act in this sort of moral way. They're almost like a moral judge and that they have these prescient telepathic abilities. They can know either the contents of your mind, which is sort of a telepathic thing, or they know the contents of your heart. So intention, almost a moral dimension. And so you could imagine like, well, what would give rise to that sort of a belief? Well, if an animal is very wide ranging and is highly mobile, it's gonna be encountered very, very, very rarely. And especially the further we go back in time when social units are smaller and smaller and smaller, you know, we're not talking about, you know, gigantic cities. Later, there are chiefdoms and things like that. But let's say a village, you know, a tribe or a social unit like an extended family. Members of that social unit, only one of them might see one tiger each generation. It could be that rare. Hmm. Let's say in Siberia, for example, with the Udijay, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and some of these other people, Usuri, I believe. And so they would be serendipitous and almost random. And then if you were to tell your other members of your social unit, hey, let me, I'm going to go take you to where this, I'm going to show you this thing. You'll never see it because by the time you get back to that point, it's, you know, however many miles away and it might not return to that place again this year, who knows? And so you would experience that phenomenologically. It would be as if you can only see them when you're not looking for them. Hmm. And so that belief is sort of projected onto the animal in a lot of these places is that they know when you're looking for them and they won't allow you to see them. You will only see them when you're not looking for them. And as a moral dimension, you'll only see them if you're pure of heart. And so there's all these beliefs, like not just in Siberia, but like down through parts of India and the Sundarbans that like a tiger won't kill a person who's free from sin. So there is this sort of like how to conduct mm -hmm. yourself in the world 
moral dimension to, hey, these things are dangerous, but you know, if you do your chores and you treat people well, maybe you won't get eaten. <laughs> but also, like they'll know when you're, don't bother looking for them because they know when you're looking for them. And then you go to Africa with the both the lowland and mountain gorillas, and those same beliefs are associated with gorillas. That and it was also seen as like they had this sort of prescience that they knew when you were looking for them and you could not see them if you were looking for them. And you'll hear today people say things like, you don't find Sasquatch, Sasquatch finds you. Like contemporary 2023 researchers, which is just an extension of that same idea because something is being experienced that has a, a fairly rational explanation. But because we experience the world through that sort of metaphysical lens, we put the onus on the animal. Oh, the animal knows we're looking for it. It must have some ability to know. And it's the same with, uh, you know, hopefully I'm not going on too long for your time frame here. But another thing that's shared across those is this belief that these three animals, the, what four, the Sasquatch, the bear, the tiger, the gorilla can mm -hmm. paralyze you with its gaze. It can freeze you. It would hypnotize you, freeze you. Essentially, they turn to stone, so to speak. Now, if, if we look at our own evolutionary history, the innate freezing response to fear, which is called tonic immobility, is, you know, a, a conserved response that's shared across all primates. You know, when in our evolutionary history, when we were living in trees and we were very small rodent sized primates, which is the bulk of, you know, primate existence before they fractionate out and become monkeys and apes. Uh, you know, they were hunted by motion seeking animals like cats, snakes and birds. So the individuals that froze when, you know, a motion sensing predator was around, they survived and passed on their genes. And so that became an innate response. And so, you know, very few things will generate that response in you, especially as we became, you know, modern homo sapiens or sort of, you know, we spent a long time at the middle where we ate a lot of things and a lot of things ate us. And then eventually we worked our way to the top of the food chain. So once we're at the top of the food chain, there's probably very few things that could freeze you in your track that could trigger that response. Because, you know, most of the animal world, you know, size is very rare, large size. That's why there's, you know, a trophic pyramid. Most things are smaller than us that we encounter, you know, rodents, reptiles, on and on and on. So when we would encounter these big, rare animals, in that once in a lifetime, once in a generation sort of setting, they probably did experience uh, tonic immobility, the innate freezing response and a bit of, you know, overwhelming fight or flight terror. And so in those belief systems, the onus is put on the animal. It did that to, to me. Not that, oh, well, there's something conserved. I mean, you could hardly expect pre-experimental societies to posit that there's a conserved biophysiological, like neurological response to fear you know so it makes more sense to go like hey if you run into one of these things it can freeze you it'll paralyze you you won't be able to move rather than thinking that it's an involuntary response and so i think most of what the paranormal proponents in the sasquatch realm believe today are all the same ancient ideas they've just updated the nomenclature so tigers, bears, and gorillas are thought to mediate between worlds, very often either the spiritual and physical realm or the worlds of humans and animals, because these, you know, they were seen as sort of separate worlds. Mm -hmm. And people believe the same thing about Sasquatch in older times, and they believe it today. It's just now they call it interdimensional. It's the same idea as the physical realm, spiritual realm mediation. It's just it's updated to a term that has more of like a, a science-y 
root or it sounds more scientific. And it's the same with, you know, this idea that a Sasquatch could know the contents of your mind or heart, you know, that has been transmuted into being associated with psi abilities or telepathy or things of that nature. And so people are still, I can't tell you how many people I meet that are like, well, I don't engage in magical thinking, but interdimensional, you know, it's like, well, no, <laughs> we, we all do. We've just changed the nomenclature to pretend that we're separate, but it's like, make no mistake the the cultures that created these mythologies, we are exactly the same creatures, physiologically, biologically, cognitively. Uh, you know, we're, it's like what? a smartphone. Matt. Like we're the same models and units of phones. We might have some more apps, like the science app today, but we are ex the same units, you know, processing the same information. Well, I have the sleep app, uh, but uh, I don't know about the eight ninety nine a month to pay for it, but uh, I might now that, you know, working up here um so anyway what i want to ask you though is which is a tangent on what you're speaking about and we've asked a couple of other researchers because i heard a fairly famous researcher and you'll probably know who he is it was uh christopher noel posited this theory and like so if i were to say to you do you believe that pe uh, people experience ghosts in their home do you believe in the existence of ghosts well it would like, really... just a yes or no do do people have experiences that they call ghostly experiences? Absolutely. Apparitional experiences? Certainly. Yes. Okay. So if it's possible for a human, then for some of the some of these experiences in the woods that people have that are a little different, and I know a couple of people that have had them, Matt, uh, our, our own Matt Knapp has had a, uh, a couple of these experiences in the woods. Is it possible that a Sasquatch, a that its ghost could inhabit a place that they once lived in the woods and do something that was inexplicable. Like, you know, they'll say, well, I heard it walk up, but I didn't hear it walk away or, you know, something like that. Do you think that's possible? Well, what people call apparitional experiences are certainly real experiences because, again, they're described cross-culturally the world over, supported by probably millions of witnesses, because that seems to be the most prolific of the paranormal categories. And the UAP, let's say, in the most general sense, like unidentified lights in the sky or what appear to be discs or crafts, and in the Sasquatch, what appear to be some kind of animal, because they're hair covered, mm -hmm. you know, they, they have mammary glands, they're some kind of mammal, and they don't have tails or claws, they're probably apes. Now, to say that the ghost phenomenon, the apparitional phenomenon, can be attributed to, oh, well, those are just the spirits of people who've died and they're somehow stuck in limbo and they're left behind. They don't know they're dead. They haven't moved on. Anything. It's like, wait, wait, wait. There's a huge leap between what gives rise to the experience and that particular interpretation. Just like to see lights in the sky or what appear to be craft to say, oh, yeah, well, they're absolutely extraterrestrials from another galaxy. Right. They've mastered space time. Right. Or, no, it's a breakaway civilization that's developed a technology that they're trying to hide from the human overlords and the elite ruling class. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're, we're too far ahead in the interpretive schema to say that, okay, well, yes, we can acknowledge that the phenomenon exists, but we can also acknowledge that we don't understand what the root of it is or the source of it. So I, I think to take two unknown phenomena, you know, the Sasquatch phenomenon and apparitional what we call ghosts spirits whatever the case may be and to try to say well the things that are in common about them in various settings 
might be because they're connected or they have a relatedness. Whereas I would say, well, what do they have in common the most? The thing that they have the most in common is that they are detected by the human observer. Sure. And so if humans see the world through certain, like, you know, we have these, it would take a long time to try to accurately describe it, but the way that we project archetypal elements onto novel or unknown phenomena. And we have, you know, a, we're a repository of these certain archetypal motifs then it's no wonder that we project the same archetypal motifs onto multiple unknown phenomena, even though they're not related, but we're, you're basically, you know, if sure. you're looking at everything through rose colored glasses, everything's yeah. kind of rose. Everything's red. Yeah. It, it, it may and have so no relation see, at all. Just, it's just, it's, it's within the realm of if, if there's such a thing as ghosts, I, if for humans, it's possible, I guess, I don't know. I, you know and I mean? that's the big if. And I'm not trying to dismiss it. Yeah. I mean, I, I find a lot of the near-death experience literature fascinating. And, uh, you know, people that have written about or tried to study that, it's very interesting. And so I'm not saying that there is no extension of, of consciousness beyond, you know, the physical death. Who knows? I certainly don't know. Uh, you know, and I'm not qualified to because I don't study that subject. But I would just say that, you know, that would have to be proved to some definitional degree in order to then apply it to another mystery rather than to take these two mysteries. And cause yeah, people do have anomalous experiences at the home or in the woods. Right. And we're still trying to get to the bottom of all of that, but it, to first assume that, you know, there's a soul that survives death that manifests in an earthly form. It's like, well, that's one of many possible interpretations of the ghost phenomenon. And then to take the Sasquatch, which we don't even know if there's a living animal behind that yet, because there's no proof. Oh, there's a lot of suggestive evidence. I believe it. And then to say, well, if <laughs> if there's a living animal and it yeah. dies, its soul can survive in the same. It's a lot of there's many assumptions that have to stack up. What what makes the Sasquatch so convenient uh, as a as a fringe topic to study is that it doesn't require anything new. I mean, if. We, we know that these very large apes coexisted with our genus in Asia for well over a million years. And they were large, omnivorous, with a broad diet. They lived in thick, dense forests alongside our ancestors. And so if that lineage, whether it's that genus or the clade that produced that genus, they had access to North America multiple times in the Miocene through the Pleistocene. So everything exists within the, the realm of the known that I could say, well, if the Sasquatch is discovered, it doesn't really introduce anything new. It just says, well, maybe this, something related to these apes got over here. That's it. Whereas these other fields, like, you know, to get to the bottom of whatever UFOs, UAP are, which there's probably multiple phenomena responsible we for multiple so. things responsible for variations yep. of the phenomena, that might require a lot of new, you know, and it's the same with whatever's behind ghosts and apparitions, whereas like, the Sasquatch should be the simplest one, although it's very elusive. And the, the wild thing about our society and, you know, the modern world is that people talk about ghosts and UFOs in such a common way and a very accepting, open way. Again, in the way that I just described, whereas I'll ask people, like, do you believe in ghosts? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, what do you think it is? And they'll rattle off. Oh, it's the spirit of a dead person it's, trapped between right. roads and make it. And then I'll say, do you believe in Sasquatch? No, absolutely not. That's all hogwash. <laughs> And so we live in a society where it's easier for someone to say that they made contact with a spiritual being than it is for 
anyone of any sort of status or education to admit that they might have seen an undiscovered ape. How is that the more radical or uh, extraordinary of the claims, you know, but that's just that's the way it is. And so that's why I wrote this book to hopefully destigmatize some of that. And the book is called The Phenomenal Sasquatch. Wait, where's my word doc? Yep, thank you. The Phenomenal Sasquatch, Seeking the Natural Origins of a Cultural Icon. And the author is the brilliant Matt Pruitt. Matt, you should read more books. I mean, that's what I figured out after this is really you should read more. Okay? I read a lot. I read a lot. <laughs> I've always got I'm multiple I'm being facetious, books, sort of like Matt. Can you, play, can you play along? I could tell that you read a book a day. Uh, <laughs> so, I try. Uh I try. It's great. So I wish it's everybody a, would read more books. You're right. Amen. And I, I amen. Sh- <laughs> amen. She's a, yeah. I mean, you have you have three readers that are on this. Actually, four of you. I'm I'm the one that doesn't read that much anymore. But uh, but I need to. So I am inspired by what you do. Um, do you want to finish? Uh, can you make a quick? Because I got to get people out of here. Can you make a quick hitter out of your what happened in North Carolina during that? You said that was uh, one of the most interesting of the three really interesting nights during those that year of research oh uh to make it a quick hitter i mean it's a place that i've had experiences multiple times mostly hearing those long bellowing moaning howls and uh so we'd gone back to that area specifically trying to get some thermal footage uh, more than anything and so we had the cameras down one drainage and then something happened in camp at night while mm-hmm. the thermal cameras were away and uh one of the people that was there was a fairly staunch skeptic and slept through it and sort of didn't believe it and then the next night i moved all the cameras back to our primary portion of camp and it came and visited his section of camp and scared the ever-living hell out of this guy and he became uh you know less he was sitting more on one (laughs) side of the fence than the other let's say it would take a while to describe exactly what happened but that's it in a nutshell so i've been back many times and will continue to go back there I love it. I love it. All right. You don't need to share your, your secret spot, man. That is, that's awesome because I, you know, nobody that's on the panel today, if Matt were here, he could talk about what, what he's seen. Uh, none of us have, have seen one. I've been out a few times and now that I'm here in Georgia, I plan on going out finding, uh, and I'll probably hit you up to find out who I should look to, to, to go out because I'm a beginner. I'm a okay woodsman, but I really need to be out there with experienced people. Um, I'll take it. I'm in North Georgia all the time for field research. I I would love to go out because I I believe that this exists as much as anyone can believe that 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 this creature exists without having seen it, because I just believe in the credibility of I believe what Cliff has seen in Bobo uh, and Matt and just Doug and Jeff Harding and many others that have. I've heard, uh, but um, let's go with, because uh, we got to get people out of here. Let's go with Cabby Goodbyes, uh, starting with uh, Priscilla. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great listening to you speak, Matt. It was like a really cool lecture, and I'm a nerd, so I love the way you were talking about it. I'm a biology, biology background, so I never, you know, that makes more sense to me what you said, and I'm super woo, but what you said makes sense. And yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It was great seeing everybody. Oh, dude, it is always a pleasure to have you, Priscilla. And uh, yeah, hopefully you can get there's there's another big footer you could get in show because there's other stuff. Oh, I yeah. want to go I'll definitely into be about... getting your book. <laughs> yeah, and me, too. Thank you. Uh, um, I will be getting that book, too. I, I wanted to talk about disclosure with Matt, so we'll try to do a part two. But I knew that tonight needed to be 
uh, cut short due to some uh, constraints. Uh, Debs. Yeah, so I have the title for your next book, The Pursuit of Meaning, and I'm looking forward to you working on that <laughs> because I think that would be a great book. I, I'm hoping you'll broaden this um, intellectual approach to include other things like, you know, ghosts, spirit, and, um, you know, demons, and hopefully UAPs, and just kind of like get another book that combines a lot of information into one place. Um, I'd really like to see that. I think you've got an amazing um, grasp of what needs to be done for people to approach this in an academic way. So thank you for coming today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's very, very generous. Money, Nathan. Yeah, Matt, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, you've done an amazing job uh, expounding on your perspective and kind of mapping out the topology of phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And I think it's incredibly valuable. It's not only valuable for Sasquatch, but there's so many overlapping areas into UAP and, and other phenomena, as, as you touched on as well. So I do look forward to hoping, hope, hopefully having you back with us because I think we can go a lot deeper in some of these areas and explore some other territory as well as we kind of continue to push to. these uh, ontological frontiers. So uh, thank, th thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, money. I would like to drag uh, Matt into ufology. Like <laughs> we we need him over here, don't we? Right. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. We we definitely like to drag you over into phenomenology. Yeah. And we'll try to get into what the implication on the next one. We'll try to get into what the implications of disclosure would be. But I'd be remiss. We have a gentleman in the chat named uh, Nicholas uh, Mick. He's from the UK, and um, he's a medium himself. He has some pretty amazing. He sent me some video of a, a spirit next to him that you can physically see. You could physically see better than you could see these ghost shows. And he also has some work with a, a spirit box, uh, some really good conversations with uh, Foggy, uh, who he talks to all the time. Um, but I was curious. He's curious. Do you know of Bigfoot in the UK? I've not encountered anything claims or evidence wise that I found very compelling or credible. Uh, and it's interesting because a lot of the book looks into juxtaposing, like, is it strictly a psychological phenomenon or is it strictly a biological phenomenon? It's like, spoiler alert, it's both. Both things happen and they they sort of intermingle. But I do think on the, the psychological side or as a, almost a psychocultural phenomenon, if you look at the, when Finding Bigfoot became very popular, all of a sudden there was a surgence of claims i'm not going to say sightings because you know what is a sighting well claims of sightings claims emerging from the uk of sasquatches that did not exist in the previous decades or even you know let's say centuries now yes there are archetypal forms the green man or the gray man of is it ben mcdoy mcdoey i'm probably butchering that uh, so they're these sort of like mythological characters or archetypal figures that are wild man archetypes let's say but in terms of the modern history of observations and evidence associated with these large, upright, ape-like forms. There's none of that in the UK really until Finding Bigfoot spikes in popularity. So I do think that that is evidence of like, well, maybe there is to some degree a bit of psychocultural, mm -hmm. I don't want to call it contagion, but the way that ideas, I guess diffusion might be the, the right word. And so, of course, that happens to some degree in North America. So not all the claims are true, even if Sasquatches exist. But I've not seen anything in the UK that would suggest that the person to talk to would be uh, Andy McGrath. So I would say to your your member or listener Mick. there, um, 
Andy McGrath's book. He, he's got a podcast called Beasts of Britain. He's a great researcher. He'd be the person to talk to about that most specifically. There you go, Mick. And uh, thank you very much for answering that last uh, that last one. I want to make sure we got him. Uh, Mick has been such a, uh, a big supporter of our show. Um, anyway, uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. It, it's a pleasure to listen to you and Cliff and, and Bobo. Um, and, and, um, I've heard you on so many podcasts and I was just like, man, I would love to get that guy on. Luckily I became friends with Tim Halloran so he could make this happen. And, um, I'll reach out to you, uh, once I get actually get a house, get my backpack up here and my gear and, and, and ready to my hiking boots and ready to go out in the forest. And, uh, once again, it's an honor. So, uh, on behalf of, um, Matt Pruitt and Nathan Debs. And Priscilla, this is DJ saying peace out, one love. We'll see you down the road. And as always, we're wondering what's up around the bend.